Hey, brown girls, before we start, I want to tell you about a Radiotopia show, The Stoop. It's an award-winning podcast hosted by journalists Leela Day and Hana Baba that tells stories from across the Black diaspora. Leela's African-American, Hana's Sudanese-American, and they get personal about what it means to be Black today. They're in their eighth season, and together they explore Black life through intimate conversations and reporting that dig deep into the lived realities of being Black. The joyful, the painful, and everything in between. It's personal, it's communal, it's where you let your guard down and just get real. Join Leela Hanna on The Stoop from Radiotopia. Hey, Brown Girls, it's Ashanti, host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Today, we're focusing on a topic that has affected every one of us, racial violence. When I use the term racial violence, I don't just mean physical violence. I'm talking about all actions that are meant to hurt people of color. Systemic racism, you guessed it, is a form of racial violence. Our guest today is Melanie Campbell, the president and CEO of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. Her organization is dedicated to increasing civic engagement and voter participation in Black and underserved communities. We at the BGG know one of the most important steps toward ending systemic racism is to get involved in the process and get more people of color elected. But before we hear from Melanie, I'm so excited to chat with a special guest, Danielle Moody from Woke AF Daily. Hey, Danielle. Thanks for joining us. I'm so excited to have you here. Hey, Ashanti. Thank you for everything that you do to elevate and make sure that people understand that BIPOC folks are a part of this conversation, are a part of what makes this country great, and are a part of its repair that it's in desperate need of. So, you know, for the last two years under the Biden administration, I think that we all thought that when Biden was elected, that our work was going to be easier, that things were going to feel like they might have changed. And yet following the summer of Freedom Summer of 2020, following many people filling up the streets of this country and demanding uh, that Black Lives Matter, we have continued to see a range of shootings of unarmed Black people. We have considered, continued to feel unprotected. And now that we are heading into yet another election season with more shootings and more Black people and brown people living in fear around this country and wondering what our future looks like, you know, I keep wondering to myself what has actually changed. And I try and be hopeful, but I keep wondering what has actually changed under the Biden administration. And what is going to make us feel as if progress is on the horizon? That is a very good and very real question. I think like all of us, when Biden and Harris came in, we were so excited, especially after four years of Trump, just to have some sanity in the White House. 
And I have friends who are working in the administration at the White House, different agencies. And one of the things that they even say is it was much more of a bigger mess than we imagined. Mm -hmm. I feel like the first thing that they actually had to do was get the pandemic under control. And when I think about the pandemic, I go back to a doctor who literally said, just the minute we knew about it, if people had just masked for like two or three weeks, everything would be so different. We wouldn't be in this situation. So I definitely commend them for everything that they have done to just even get us back outside, to get people working again. But I really don't blame them for the lack of progress. I just think the Trumpism, the MAGA people, the hateful people Mm -hmm. are much wilder than we could have imagined. And how we can say Trump getting elected was a backlash to Obama for them still seeing Biden Harrison there because you still got a black person in the White Mm -hmm. House only fueled them even more. So they're saying, all right, if we don't have Trump anymore and the White House being the racist in chief, we're just going to amplify it on our own and take it to the next level. And that's what we saw with the insurrection. Literally, they say, nothing's wrong with it. This is my government, my house, my property. We're like living in a time where the racism is at an all-time high that I don't even think that Biden and Harris can stifle it. I think it's really on us talking to the people in our families and our communities to make a difference and especially not making sure that these people get into elected office. Right now, there are 300 election deniers who will be on the ballot across the country in November. Some of them running for like the highest levels of office. So we have to make sure that these people don't get back in power because like that's their next play is they want to see Trump being president again. And then there are going to be his little allies in Congress at the statewide level. I mean, some of these people that are running for governor, it is really scary. So I wish more has changed, but we are still living in a time of immense backlash and especially a huge backlash that includes tons of anti-blackness. And, you know, you know, to your point, I think that the problem that I see with Democrats often is their desire to want to stifle the bad as opposed to name it. And the Gotta reality, call it out. And, <laughs> right. The, the reality here is that Donald Trump and Trumpism wasn't just going to go away because Biden and Harris entered into the White House. This mm-hmm. was this this is a problem that has become pervasive and cancerous in the country. And if you are not naming and calling out the reason why we are living in this space of anxiety and fear, if you are not beyond the speech that Biden gave a couple of months ago in Philadelphia, his soul of the nation speech, if you are not naming on a regular basis that we're not living in normal political discourse times, to your earlier point, when they called the insurrection, people defecating in the Capitol building, people beating and killing police officers. And the Republican National Committee wants to refer to that as normal political discourse, but then wants to turn around and refer to the 2020 Summer of Freedom as Antifa run wild. Mm -hmm. Are we like, 
We, if you're not calling out the obvious racism, if you're not saying that the rise in white domestic terrorism in this country is something that we need to take seriously and that the FBI, the CIA need to not shelve the reports that were put out that mm-hmm. said that this was coming, maybe mm-hmm. we wouldn't have been caught off guard, right, mm-hmm. by 2021. And my, my fear, Ashanti, my fear is that that is just the beginning. My mm-hmm. fear is that when you have these candidates who are still denying the election of 2020 that are using violence in their language mm-hmm. as they speak about their political opponents, how long before that language turns into action, mm-hmm. right? We've already seen those kinds of threats. And so I, for one, am deeply concerned about where we go and the fact that if we don't continue to name this violence, folks will continue to be caught off guard instead of being called into action of how to prevent it. You are 100% right. And, you know, sorry, listeners, but we're being very honest. January 6th was just the beginning. Like, there is going to be something much worse than January 6th. And one of the things that I did after the insurrection is I actually went back and read about Hitler's rise because I saw this thread on Twitter where someone said, this is exactly how Hitler came to power. His first coup was failed. He went to jail. He came back stronger. If we don't think these little proud boys and oath keepers and whatever aren't in jail plotting their next move, Mm y'all, we need not to be delusional. And one of my favorite Biden moments, and you know, this pissed off the MAGA crowd, is when he called it fascist. And everyone Mm -hmm. went wild because that's what we wanted. That's what we wanted from our leaders is to publicly say, this ain't it. You know, they are literally fascists. They're white supremacists. They're trying to do away with our democracy. And even with Speaker Pelosi, the clip of her being like, I'm going to punch him out. I'm going to punch him out. And people are like, that's inappropriate. I was like, no, that's Nancy from Baltimore that y'all got. Because she was keeping it real. But that's also what we want to see. Like when Beto is doing his tour stops and he's talking about Uvalde and a man laughed. I loved when he said, I don't think it's funny, MFR, because it isn't funny. This was Mm -hmm. literally a older, more seasoned, conservative white man laughing about brown kids that got shot. And what, that's what we needed in that moment was Beto saying it is not funny at all. We absolutely need more of this from our elected officials, like as the voters, as the activists, as part of the Democratic base, because I want to know that you agree with me, that you actually see us and what we're saying, and we're not in some vacuum and you all are in the White House that we're all on the same page, that this ish Mm -hmm. ain't right. This ish can get a lot worse, but you're going to speak up and you're going to start to do things to protect us. Yeah. I think that the collective gaslight has to end, right? (sighs) Which is that, which is again, if you are just, if Democrats are continuing to move along in this political season, as if all is normal, as if somehow we have, you know, taken a time machine back to the early 2000s, where you just have casual disagreements with your opponent on policy, that's not where we are. And so for Beto to say what he did, for, you know, Speaker Pelosi to say what she did and others 
who have begun to call out the nonsense, to call out the BS and to call out the violence that they are seeing is like, it's alerting the rest of us to be like, you know, that unease you're feeling, it's real, Mm -hmm. right? When you see that in the, at the beginning of the pandemic, which we are still in, at -hmm. the beginning of the pandemic, gun sales went through the roof. And then on top of that, you have the Supreme Court that has just wiped away states' rights and ability to be able to navigate their own gun policy like they did here in New York, where I am. These people are armed. They are gassed up by Donald Trump and Mm -hmm. Trumpism. And Democrats cannot pretend that they can just lower gas prices and think that they're going to lower the temperature of this country because it's going to require more. And action behind it is what's going to require it. Because like you said, you look at Hitler and Hitler's rise and we see these parallels. If Donald Trump and everyone that was responsible from the foot soldiers to the architects of January 6th are not held accountable for trying to overthrow our democracy, then all you have done is presented them with the opportunity and time frame to go for their next win, to go for their next coup, because it hasn't been disrupted. At all. And I still have so many questions about the insurrection because we know that there were inside people helping them out. I still want to know who was in Congresswoman Presley's office and like removed her system to let people know she was in danger. That meant someone who had access inside that building went into her office to make sure she can call for help because she was clearly a target. That Black woman was a target. They knew how to get to Speaker Pelosi's office. They knew how to Mm -hmm. get to, as Congressman Clyburn calls it, not his office, but where he hangs out to do his work. How do you even know where that is? And the tours, just the fact that they were giving tours, no one even stopped. And we have the video footage of, I don't care what that police officer wants to say, he literally let that barricade down for the people to come in. You literally had Capitol Police officers taking photos with the insurrectionists. It is also in the House. The call is coming from inside the House. So there also needs Mm -hmm. to be a clean sweep of those people who are supposed to protect our elected officials, especially our black and brown elected officials, because I worry about them because they are not safe at all. No. And, you know, as somebody who worked on the Hill, I will tell you that in the Capitol building, after many years, I would still get lost. So you tell me how, so you (laughs) tell me how, how a tourist coming in for the first time is finding these secret rooms that are not- They're not, not, right, y'all, they're not visible. There's no signs, y'all. None, none. So how you get to go to Nancy Pelosi's office in the Capitol building and put your feet up on her desk, how you find Clyburn's office, because you had a map. You were directed. Yes. Which means that these members are still in danger and our democracy is still in danger. And people want to be concentrating on gas prices and on- and food prices, all of those things are important, but don't really matter if you're living under an authoritarian and fascist regime mm-hmm. and you have no rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ooh. All right, y'all. Ooh, we got into it today. We got to get to this interview with Melanie. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle, I loved having you on. I know you're going to be back. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Ashanti. You can hear more from Danielle Moody on her show, Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody, 
wherever you get your podcast. And now on to my conversation with Melanie Campbell, president and CEO of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Great. How are you? It's so good to see you, my sister. Good to see you. I know you have had a busy weekend, busy weeks out on the road as we head up to the midterm elections. So why don't you introduce yourself to the BGG family? Tell them about you and the amazing work that you do. Well, first, I just (laughs) want to thank you for all you do. Oh, thank you, sis. Oh, and I appreciate you so much. I see you, and you're doing some awesome work. But I had, but what's my day job? Um, I'm president <laughs> and CEO of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. I'm also the convener of the Black Women's Roundtable, and so we uh, focus on you know about four platforms around civil rights and social justice work. We focus on civic engagement and building Black political power, and also a lift up. Black women's leadership and young people. So that's kind of broadly what we focus on. We have affiliates in 11 states and actually building a, a local affiliate here in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. Ooh. So that's kind of our footprint. And, uh, and so we're in the throes of the election and we're a nonpartisan 501c3 organization. And what brought you to this work? Tell us a little bit about your story that made you say, I have to dedicate my life, my career to fighting for racial justice and also uplifting women of color, especially Black women. Um, well, I would say I didn't know this was what I was going to do for uh, like my life's work, but I was very active in college and at Clark Atlanta it was Clark College. And but I was always active doing other things. I was studied business, you know, did that for a while. I was in corporate America, and I hated it. It just didn't fit me. And I would <laughs> run home and and just try to find a way to get involved in somebody's campaign. A lot of partisan work back in the day in Atlanta, and then um, met up with this organization in nineteen ninety four to do some consulting. By that time, I was working for myself and had a firm in Atlanta. And uh, the next year, I was offered a job to be the deputy director. And uh, in some ways, and why I've stayed so long is because it's not one-dimensional. The work, I've been able to focus on the different elements of my uh, passion. And that's what kept me here, especially focus on Black women and lifting up Black women in this civil rights space that I've, I've journeyed. Uh, it gets to be more than challenging, there's still a lot of gender bias in the space. So it was one of those things that Dr. Dorothy Height was a founding board member of my organization. Mm-hmm. And she's the one who convinced me to pour into what I had passion is right where I was. I was I was out of here, girl. <laughs> I was out of here. Oh, <laughs> uh, and I was headed back to Georgia or somewhere. And she convinced me that I could continue to find my way. You have you're not one dimensional. This organization is multifaceted. So that's how I'm still here. I love it. And if any of the listeners aren't familiar with Dr. Dorothy Height, she has some amazing books that I highly recommend to read. They will inspire you, uplift you. 
And Melanie, you talked about how we still have to deal with a lot of gender bias. We also live in a world where we also have to deal with a lot of racial bias that can lead to racial violence, which is a daily concern for folks. Where can we make change as community activists? And what are some of the tangible steps you want to see elected officials take to make real legislative change against racial violence? Yes. One of the tangible ways that I believe that we have to, if we want to continue to elevate and make progress when it comes to racial violence, racial injustice, uh, and even gender injustice, uh, we're finding ourselves with so many of our, our rights under attack. I think this election in the next two weeks, like what's immediate for people is to find out what's going on and make sure you vote. That's just, that, that's the one tangible. Pay attention to where the power wheel is in your community, mm-hmm. right? Um, on a federal level, yes. We know if you're paying attention to federal politics, then you know that there's a need for some shifting and changing of power balance uh, in the U.S. Senate, quite frankly. It's just a fact <laughs> that a lot mm-hmm. of things that our people voted for, young people voted for across, was really about dealing with the issue of police reform and police violence and eradicating that through the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that was not passed, that should have been passed a long time ago. And so we, this is the election where we can see if that can make a difference depending on where the balance of power ends up on, on November 8th. People need to focus around what's happening in their state. There are so many elections this year where the governor is being elected where, as well as the uh, state legislatures. So I worked in city government in one of my other lives, right, uh, career lives uh, for the late Maynard Jackson's administration uh, before I came here. and. One of the things that I, that I know is who's that police chief? Who's that DA? So really just mm-hmm. down to the nuts and bolts of how, uh, how do you deal with the issue of racial violence um, that in many times we sh- it shows up right there with the police force. And so mm-hmm. these elections are um, the state elections, the local elections, and it gets down to that so people can connect the dot to, okay, do I really have the power? to make a difference and, and, and something can happen. And it's frustrating when you vote, you put it all, put it all in. And I, I don't dismiss anybody's frustration. I just say, take that frustration. That's like, okay, now where else? We didn't win here. Where else can we win? We, mm-hmm. but, but know you're winning, is my, 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 my good uh, friend Latasha would say. We are, we are winning. That's why they're coming after us in so many mm-hmm. ways. And so I try to encourage, and we're trying to encourage our folk uh, through the work that we do to own that power and then pay attention to that power dynamic to know, okay, you may be upset with Biden and Harris administration. Okay, but they're not on the ballot. Who's on your ballot? You know, what's mm-hmm. the power of the ballot? That's what the whole idea that we're doing this power of the ballot tour to really just kind of bring home with a visual. This is the power of your ballot to impact some of these issues and be real that, no, you haven't got won all the battles right now, but just keep on using this, not only this, but power is impacted by politics and policy, and it does make a difference, and you have the power in your hands with that ballot. Mm-hmm. And I know police reform is something you're so passionate about. And if we can get personal for a minute, you and I were at Power Rising a few weeks ago. You were on a panel, and you told a story about 
what happened to you the night before and an interaction with a police officer. And all of us in that room could feel your hurt, your pain, your frustration of not knowing what that stop with that police officer could lead to. And I think a lot of people think that for some of us in this work, that we somehow become immune to these injustices, as if these things aren't affecting us, you know, affecting our family. I talk openly about the misinformation that is happening, especially targeting Black men, and how I have to talk to my two younger brothers about what's really going on. So could you just tell us in that moment, why did you feel it was so important for you to share that story with us at Power Rising? Thank you. I Unfortunately, I'm just trying to, yeah. Well, we were talking about power then, right? We were talking mm-hmm. about what was at stake, what we need to do. And I know that, this may not be the exact way to say it, but intellectually, I know, right? I know that this is happening. It's happening mm-hmm. in my family. It's happened to people that I know. Um, and, and that that issue around policing, um, dealing, with, dealing with police violence and um, eradicating police violence is still with us. Mm-hmm. And so it was one of those issues. And I didn't feel that I could sit up there and talk about I didn't mean to talk about what happened to me, <laughs> as you could tell. Right? <laughs> but I wanted to try to illustrate, like, mm-hmm. it, it was in my head. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, it was in my mm-hmm. head. And I'm like, if I'm going to be real about what's happened, I got to tell people what happened. But it's also, it was on your heart. We could tell it's very much on your heart. And that's when I was like, realized how traumatized I really was mm-hmm. um, from what had happened because, you know, you just kind of, you know, we pick up, you know, black women were strong, we just keep moving. And it really mm-hmm. kind of uh, rocked me in that moment. And I appreciated you all for letting me, you know, be vulnerable in that space and share. And I was, you know, hey, we were the lucky ones, right? We know mm-hmm. so many of our people don't make it out of that. We never know what really happened. How did that happen? How did that get out of control? so fast. And that's the part that was really um, real reality about how fast and how vulnerable you really are when people have power over you because they've got all of the, the armor on them. You're looking at all of the, the, they were loaded for bear, like they were SWAT or something. You know, it was just mm-hmm. like a lot of mm-hmm. firepower, just straight up, right? And mm-hmm. just the energy and the uh, aggressiveness of trying to find a way to stoke us into doing something so they'd have a reason to either lock us up or or worse. I mentioned that I was in my head thinking about, and we were in the car. It was like, don't touch anything. Don't move. Don't touch your phone. And I, cause I, I know you say that I know people, right? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I got a lot of people I know right there in Georgia mm-hmm. that could call, but I just felt like I don't need to touch anything. Mm-hmm. I don't need to move. Mm-hmm. I need to keep everything where they can see us. So we didn't make a phone call. We didn't record. You think you might have the moment to record, but we were all thrown off. And it was like, don't touch the phone. Mm-hmm. It's dark. Mm-hmm. They can flicker. I mean, that's what was going through my head, to be honest. And to get us out of that, get us out of that situation. Stay calm, but find a way out. And God got us out of that. Amen, he did. And 
thank you for sharing that story. I could tell it was definitely on your heart to share at Power Rising. And like you said, you and I, we have people. We can pick up our phone and call people and help diffuse situations. But when you're in that moment, in that situation, you do have to think, what does me grabbing my phone do? And also, could me even saying I can call this person or calling a person actually escalate the situation still? And my mm-hmm. instincts kicked in to just talk about a portion, about a portion of what I do. Right. And I was like, oh, we work with young people. We work yeah. on youth empowerment, which is true. Yeah. But I wasn't in that moment because I grew up in Florida where we grew up around the KKK and, and, and white nationalists. And they are very much on the rise in Florida and other southern states. And not just the South, but you know, definitely in the South where more Black people are exposed to it. But it's... um. It was that that kind of a a moment that I won't forget. I was talking to one of my brothers in the movement, Mark Moriel, and he was like, "You need to file." And I thought about it, you know, because um, we do have the. It gave a, a person who was with me, our communications person, a warning ticket for really no reason, but but it was a it was an eye opener to just realize how fast how quick things can get out of hand. Yeah. My go-to when I'm in those uncomfortable situations and someone's like, what do you do? I just say, I work at a coffee shop. I just, I don't even say what I do. And you talked about the fact that we have people on our ballot who impact this. So when we're talking about police reform, we can't forget the judges, the sheriffs, the prosecutors, the attorneys general. So can you tell a little bit about why it's important to know your whole ballot, which is what I say all the time. Know your whole ballot, vote your whole ballot, because some people will tend to think, well, this office deals with X, Y, Z, but there's multiple offices that deal with X, Y, Z. And if you want to get the change, you need to make sure that all of your elected officials have allies and accomplices across legislative bodies to do the work that they want to do. Uh, most definitely. And we t- I'm sticking you know, with the, I, the issue around police reform. And so let's say the incident that I went through, you know, who impacts that? Right. And so if that had escalated, then I'm dealing with I've got to pay attention to what's happening in the court system. The judges, who would I go before? Uh, who would who would at least try to listen to my side, call our side of the story, if you will, or if you're talking about the elements of of reform, then we're talking about who gets to be the head of the Justice Department so that the federal government can weigh in, where the president mm-hmm. picks that person, and just being able to give people again that 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 power will. Who's your local sheriff? Because now everybody lives in you know urban America. Some people live in rural places with a sheriff. Those are elected positions that we don't mm-hmm. think about. And then so that there's some balance, uh, hopefully, within that. If you get the right person in the office that will uh, make sure that folks are uh, fair and following the law and not you know, becoming judge and jury at a traffic stop, right? The DA, the district attorney, who, who would decide whether or not that officer, if they feel like they've been violated, um, then are they going to prosecute? So... Those elements of who gets to be, uh, who's your mayor? Who's the city council that's going to 
pass the budget to see if there's going to be more money put into mental health as well as law enforcement, if you will. So all these elements goes back to that ballot, right? And one of the things I know you lift up is, hey, where's the void? Run for office. Run for office yourself, right? And it's like, when you're talking about the, the history of Black people being elected, when we started breaking those barriers, we were young. There's a lot of young people out that I'm excited to see who are running and I think about the work that Stephanie and, and Quentin do, does with the mm-hmm. collective collective pack, you know, to really support black candidates and not just black for black states, but people who have your lived experience, who you may know from down down the street, from your neighborhood, who's out there. Pay attention to that. I think that's what's important. And that's why owning our power is a consistent thing. You can't own it today and not tomorrow and be able to see it and say, and I know uh, when I talk to a lot of Gen Z, Gen Zs, and that's the right number, right? There's a lot of of, of frustration. And then they don't know what to do. And that's what I hear a lot. And let them know that you can do something. There's so many different ways. And we have to support that. Support new leadership, new organizations, you know, along with seasoned organizations. We all have a role to play. And then even like with Black men, the conversations I've been having with Black men uh, of late uh, to really say, you know, you guys have to own, yes, Black women, we're doing our thing. We, and when we do our thing, it helps everybody. You got to own yours too. And and just really trying to just motivate folks because nobody wants to hear that, oh, we're just apathetic because that's not true. I never believed in the word. You don't see that you have the power and it's showing a difference. And then giving people the information so they know what they have vote has gotten them. Sometimes people don't even have the information. And I think elected officials are do a bad job of that, especially to me, just just Melanie. The Democrats don't do it as good a job as they could telling their story in real time. Uh never get out of campaign mode. The other party does. They never get out of campaign mode, even when it's horrible, some of the things mm-hmm. that they're doing. <laughs> they stick to stick stick to script. And I think mm-hmm. the Democrats have to do a better job of that. I agree with that. And as you mentioned, I run an organization that recruits and trains women to run for office. And before we got on the call, I got an email from Emily's List, which is now also run by a Black woman, that they're endorsing one of our alums, Stephanie Thomas, who is running for Secretary of State in Connecticut. She would be the first Black woman to hold that position, but also the first Black woman elected statewide in Connecticut, which I think is important to say because when it comes to the Northeast, people think, oh, so progressive, diverse, but we know there's a lot of work to be done when it comes to electing women of color, especially Black women. And when it comes to the right to vote, You've spoken about how our democracy is under attack. So close us out by telling our listeners, as we head into Election Day, what are some of the things that they should be doing to make sure that when they go to vote, it's good, informing other people when they go to vote that it's good, so we can protect our democracy? Because I agree I said when Donald Trump got elected, people are like, oh, all of these things are going to happen. Ashanti, what do you think is going to happen? And I said, we're going to see how fragile democracy really is. 
And that is what we are seeing. So it's on all of us to save it. So close this out. What can we do to save our democracy on November 8th? Right now, get ready to vote. Find out if you can vote early. Take five people with you. Make sure that you know where to go vote. The biggest thing that happens when you go to vote, people get, don't get their vote counted, is sometimes they don't go to the right place. They just don't go to the right mm-hmm. place. The polling place may have moved, right? And study that ballot. You talked about that, right? Don't be afraid. Get that sample ballot before you go and ask somebody that you trust. You know, it could be, it could be a family member, a good friend. You see all those judges, or you may see ballot initiatives like in Michigan where they're dealing with reproductive rights. Uh, just know what's on your ballot and, and just be vote ready. So that's the most immediate thing. So that's three things. Prepare yourself to vote. Make sure that you know what, um, that you have all the information. Know if you're going to need any kind of IDs, anything like that. Don't go in there blind. Just be prepared and then get that sample ballot so you can see what else is on there besides what you heard about. If you're uncertain, ask somebody. Because look, it happens to me, and I do this work all the time. And I'm like, what is that about? And you're afraid to vote for it or against it because you don't know what it's going to do. So get that information and take somebody with you. Take a friend, make it fun, you know, and own your power. That's that's the thing that I, that I say to people. Own your power. And we will get through this. And we are at a point that this democracy can crumble. It feels like it's crumbling, but... Mm-hmm. We, we have the power to, to, to at least slow it down and try to re, re, uh, course correct. Course correct. <laughs> course correction. Because we're on yes. the wrong road. <laughs> we're going to own our power and we're going to course correct. Melanie, thank you for all that you do. I truly appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. And thank you so much. Again, thank you. And uh, for all you do too, my sister. Appreciate you. Today, we are going on the scene for racial equity with Ellen Reddy. Ellen is the executive director of the Nolly Jenkins Family Center. She talks to us about her efforts to end corporal punishment in Mississippi schools and the tools she uses with her community to help break cycles of violence. My name is Ellen Reddy. I'm the executive director for Nolly Jenkins Family Center. We're a community-based organization located in Durant, Mississippi. Our program really started as a child care center to meet the needs of teen parents in our communities. I consider myself a village mom. I am mom to many, many children. They don't have to be my birth children. I work and live in a community where, you know, the poverty rate for Black children in the community where I live is, is probably 50%. These are poor children. These are children who should be valued. And so we have after-school programs. We offer reading program. We offer a conflict dispute resolution model. So I'm constantly working with young people. And one of the concerns was, of course, young people would come to us and talk about the violence that was going on internal to the school. One kid would get into a fight and before you knew it, it was a beat down. So there was this level of violence around young people, but not just young people. Inside of our communities were, was also violence between intimate partners. And so one of the things we asked our young people, we gave them tablets and pens and said to them, go into public spaces, laundromats, supermarkets, your own home, even inside of churches and document 
what you see is violence. And so we kind of looked at what they had documented. So one of our questions to them was, well, in all of these spaces, where do you think you can have the greatest impact? And of course, they said to us inside the school buildings. And so that was in 2012 that we started that work. And so our young people started to do petitions. They started to knock door to door to ask parents and other young people to support their efforts to get rid of corporal punishment. Children need safe places to learn. We know that violence against children can have a negative impact. It can impact their emotional growth, their psychological growth, their physical growth. Oppressed people have never waited for the oppressor to give us our freedom. We're taking our freedom. In essence, we're taking the freedom of our children. These are our children. And so we've got to give young people the tools and skills that they need, because if we give them the tools and skills they need, they will be life learners. Those same young people that you're beating on now will grow up to be the partners later on. They will grow up to be the parents. We have to hold, whether it's the Biden administration accountable, Department of Justice, Department of Education, that's both at the federal level and at the state level. We go to the polls in November and we vote to elect you, to put you in there, to be accountable, to serve the needs and interests of communities. Grassroots supporters across the country are making their voices heard this election season because their voices have an impact. AdBlue's secure online fundraising platform is trusted by millions of small dollar donors who are driving the change they want to see. At adblue.com directory, you can find and contribute directly to the groups and causes that matter most to you. So head to adblue.com directory to take action today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Please take the time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us out. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, check us out at thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. And you can find them at wondermianetwork.com. Hey, Brown Girls, I can't believe it, but we have our final episode of the season next. We have a special guest returning, Latasha Brown, the co-founder of Black Voters Matter Fund. That's a conversation you don't want to miss. Are you fired up for the midterms? Have you made your plans to vote? And did you know that Black women are the most powerful voting bloc when we move together? That's why the hashtag Black Women Vote campaign is mobilizing Black women across the country to activate our networks, cast our votes, and flex our collective power. Black Women Vote is a campaign powered by Higher Heights, which is an independent and trusted voice for Black women leading up to Election Day and beyond. Visit www.blackwomenvote.com to make your voting plan and activate your network. How to Talk to High Achievers About Anything is a new podcast from LWC Studios about the triumphs and challenges 
of Black and Brown Professionals. Host and licensed psychotherapist Stevon Lewis offers strategies to help all high achievers navigate personal and professional obstacles to define success on their own terms. Find how to talk to high achievers about anything on Twitter and Instagram at Talk2Achievers and listen and subscribe everywhere you get your podcast.